This last Sunday evening, I think it was, um, Adele had this interview with Oprah in which she opened up with raw honesty about her life and particularly about the ending of her marriage. And this was at once a very honest take and a very revealing take at the same time. She says, I've been obsessed with a nuclear family my whole life because I never came from one. From a very young age, I promised myself that when I had kids, we'd stay together. And she talked about what happened in her own life and a change that took place. And she was with some friends, and they were doing a personality inventory from a magazine. And she realized at that moment that she was no longer happy, that she was just kind of plodding along in life. And she made a decision to end her marriage. And in this interview, she continued, I take marriage very seriously, and it seems like I don't now. Almost like I disrespected it by getting married and then divorced so quickly. I'm embarrassed because it was so quick. I'm just embarrassed that I didn't make my marriage work, you know. And then she went on to talk about how the hardest thing for her was to talk to her six-year-old son and explain to him her decision. And she said, trying to explain to a six-year-old, I do love your dad, but I'm not in love with him. It makes absolutely no sense to a six-year-old. So there were so many answers I just couldn't give him because there aren't any really, like, you know, that he would understand. I appreciate Adele's uh, honesty and the struggle that she had in coming out and telling really the nation about her marriage that had failed. And she used the word embarrassed several times, and, and I think that that's uh, an emotion that a lot of people feel around this issue. If we were to just take an inventory of marriage in America, we're told that this year about 45% of first marriages in the United States will end in divorce. That's about 750,000. The average length of a divorce in America right now is eight years. 21% of U.S. men have been divorced, and 22% of U.S. women have been divorced as well. So this raises the question for us. How should we think about divorce? I have in mind here, how should we think about divorce as people who seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so I just want to say, I know that for many of us, this is a painful issue. Some of us have gone through divorces. Some of us, despite what we tried to do, had our marriages end. And there's still rawness to that and still pain. And we want to acknowledge that. For some of us, marriages will end in the future. This is not something that the church is exempt from. Churches have people who find their marriages falling apart. And so I want to bring up this issue in our series. We're going to call our study today, Till Death Do Us Part, with a question mark. I've been wrestling with what exactly to call this. I had it titled for a little while, The Painful Issue of Divorce. In fact, that's how it was printed in our, in our worship folder. This is a painful issue. Many of us know people who've gone through that. Some of us have gone through it ourselves. And so what does it mean for us as a community of faith, those who are seeking to follow Jesus, to know what Jesus says about this, but also to embody the grace and the kindness and the mercy and compassion of Jesus for those who've gone through it, and really for a city that will have many people that go through that, and maybe even for some of us in this church who will find marriages, for whatever reason, crumbling and falling apart. Let's pause and pray before we jump into this passage, uh, just because this is a, a heavy topic, 
and it's one that we need God's Spirit to lead us through and guide us through. So let's pray together. Father, there's something just unique about this issue that touches all of our lives. As we just indicated, some of us have experienced divorce. Some of us have experienced it in our extended family. Some of us have experienced it just walking with close friends through it. And some of us may even find ourselves in the future with marriages that are crumbling and falling apart. And Lord, this is not the way that things were meant to be. I pray that you would be with us as we look at these words of Jesus and help us to think through what he's saying, uh, help us to understand your intentions for us, and help us to be people who are like Jesus, who are kind and compassionate, to people who are broken, people who are hurting, and like him, to seek to bring the healing words of the gospel to bear in people's lives. Lord, work in us this day that which is pleasing in your sight. Bring us online with what Jesus has desired for us. And meet us where we are, however we find ourselves this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Matthew 19, we're told this. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So we learn here that Jesus is really at the height of his popularity. He's, He's going around and crowds are following him left and right. People are wanting to learn from Jesus. They wanting to hear from him, wanting to hear about what God desires from them, to hear the good news about the coming kingdom of God. And wherever Jesus went, you had these crowds, but you also had Pharisees, these religious leaders who are always trying to entrap Jesus. And so we're told in verse 3 that the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's an interesting question, right? Jesus is in the midst of preaching and teaching and healing. And here they come to him. And we're told they're coming to test him. They're always trying to catch Jesus, setting traps for him, trying to get him to say something. And they ask this particular question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What is Jesus going to say? Now, we know from this collection of uh, rabbinic commentaries and sayings called the Mishnah, that there are different schools of thought in the wake of the time of Jesus in the following centuries. And so, for example, the school of Shammai says, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. The school of Hillel says, he may divorce her if she spoiled a dish for him. Basically for any reason, right? And there was a rabbi named Akiba who says, he may divorce her if he found another fairer than she. This is a little bit, perhaps, of the conversations that were going on amongst some of the people of that day. And so the question is asked, Jesus, is it lawful? That is, according to the Torah, the design of life that God gave to Israel to be his covenant people on display for the world, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the answer that Jesus gives, and he quotes two places at the very beginning of the story of the scriptures. Chapter 1, about God creating them, male and female in his image, and then in chapter 2, 
where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In answering this question, Jesus isn't just going back to some of the famous kings of Israel. He's not even going back to the patriarchs. He's going back to the very beginning of the story of God's people and describing how God set up that initial couple, Adam and Eve, to be kings and queens in partnership with him in ruling this world. And Jesus says in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, man, let not man separate. So in answer to the question, can we divorce our wives for any reason, Jesus says, no, you can't. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And we saw earlier in our series, Jesus' view of marriage. We asked the question, what is marriage according to Jesus? We answered that by saying, marriage is a covenantal arrangement established by God in which he joins together a man and a woman into a one flesh union where the husband and wife can also be father and mother to any children their one flesh union produces. From the beginning, Jesus says, it was God's design for a man to leave his family, to take a wife, to cleave to her, and then to weave their lives together by becoming one flesh. That's why in traditional Christian marriages, there are vows that go something like this. I take you to be my husband or my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. These are common vows that are made in light of the teaching that Jesus gives. And in saying this to one another, they're pledging to be there. And so under God, a Christian spouse's primary loyalty is to each other before anyone else. And that includes even the self. Jesus says the two have become one flesh. And so Jesus' answer is, if the two are now one, let not man separate. But that raises all kinds of questions in our own minds, doesn't it? It raised questions for those that Jesus was talking to. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did God command, I'm sorry, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said, Because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. They're referring to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy, which is case studies, case law, about some different examples of what might happen in a marriage. And so they interpret that as Moses commanding to give a wife a certificate of divorce. And then they ask the question, why did Moses command that? And so Jesus says, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives from, but from the beginning, it was not so. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying something is at work in people that sometimes produces this hardness towards one another in relationships, especially the most intimate relationships, that of marriage. But Jesus says it wasn't designed from the beginning for marriages to end this way. So in that passage, for example, in verse, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses talks about man hating his wife. And there's a context there in which a certificate of divorce might be issued. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the hardness of heart. So here's an important point, my friends. Jesus is saying that Moses allowed for divorce due to the hardness of hearts, but it was not God's design from the beginning for marriages to end this way. It was never God's design for husbands and wives who are supposed to be intimate allies to end up at war with one another. 
It wasn't God's design for people who come together and pledge their lives to be with one another, to be cruel to one another, to speak harshly to one another. That wasn't God's design from the beginning. And so Jesus is saying that Moses allowed for divorce due to the hardness of hearts, but it was not God's design from the beginning for marriages to end this way. Jesus continues and says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. I think this would have been shocking for his original hearers, some of whom may have thought, yes, we can, like Rabbi Akiba says, divorce our wives for any reason, especially if we find someone who's fairer. But Jesus says, look, if you do that, you're committing adultery. Jesus is driving home to these men who are asking a very particular question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus responds, essentially saying, no, it is not lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. What God has brought together, let not man separate. In saying this, Jesus stands in a long tradition of prophets. For example, the prophet Malachi, some 400 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, was sent by God to call the nation of Israel back to himself, to awaken them from their, their crazy life where they just had this religious veneer, but really wanted to live their own way. And so he says to them, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not he make them one? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He continues, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It's an interesting phrase. It covers his garments with violence. I don't know what all is intended in that, but as I kind of reflect on that, I imagine how God's design is to bring these two and make them one. And when that's ripped apart, that's a very violent feeling. Those who've gone through divorce know how gut-wrenching it is to feel like you've been ripped away from that one that you are so united to. I remember when I was in Calgary, we had a young couple visit our church up there, and they came a couple times, and we had a connection card like we had here, and they signed on the back of it. They wanted to meet with me, so we set up an appointment, and I invited them over to my office. And I come to find out that the wife, by her own admission, uh, was having affairs with other men. It was a young couple in their late 20s. And she was currently involved with her boss. And she said she has feelings for him, and she didn't know what the right thing to do was. And so as compassionately and kindly as I could, but as forthrightly as I could say as well, I said, you know what the right thing is to do. You made a vow to your husband. You entered into a covenant of marriage with him. That is your guiding light. That tells you what you should do, not your changing feelings. I encourage her to break it off. Her husband, even in the wake of several affairs, is still willing to reconcile with her. And so I said, we have some work to do. And so we set up another appointment. And that afternoon, the husband called me and said, we're not going to be able to make it tonight. The wife doesn't want to come. And so I don't know how that story ended. But I was sad for the husband, who desperately wanted to keep his marriage together, even in the wake of multiple affairs. And I felt pity for this woman 
who was so enslaved to her feelings that she was willing just to, to sacrifice her marriage and just have affairs with whoever the latest suitor was. So when Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is trying to wake these people up. I want us to note the context here, though. Jesus is speaking to a specific audience, that is, males who had the cultural power, about a specific question. Can we divorce our wives for any reason? We have to be careful about taking this verse out of context and making it apply to every situation. There may be some other situations, for example, apart from sexual morality, that divorce might end up being the choice. For example, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament writes to the Corinthians, and he raises the issue about when a, Christian, when a person becomes a Christian and their spouse no longer wants to be married to them, what's the, what's the issue there? And Paul says, if, if the unbelieving spouse is not willing to stay with you, you're free to remarry. I remember a friend of mine who became a Christian, and her husband told her that if I knew that you were going to become a Christian, I would never have married you. I mean, what devastating words to hear. And she sought to be faithful to him, and he was willing to live with her. He just was not happy about this. He despised her for it. But Paul says if the situation arises and the unbelieving spouse leaves you, then you're free to marry I want to raise the question about abuse. I raise this question because I feel like sometimes the teaching of Jesus gets taken out of the context in which he's answering a specific question and gets applied across the board. For example, there's one well-known Bible teacher that I was shocked to hear him give counsel when he spoke of a woman enduring verbal abuse for a season and perhaps being smacked one night. Everything in me rose up and said, no, 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 no. Marriage is not for being verbally abused. Marriage is not for being smacked. That is not God's design. That's not God's design from the beginning. So let's be clear, my friends. To verbally abuse or to threaten physical abuse of one's spouse or to be physically violent towards one's spouse is evidence that one has already broken the covenant of marriage due to the hardness of heart. God did not bring two people together and join them in marriage for one of them, or maybe both of them, to abuse one another. And even if people are together still physically in the same environment, that is not marriage. And so, let me just, I want to make this point as well. In the state of Texas, it is a crime to threaten and or inflict bodily harm on one's spouse. It's not an accident. It's not a matter of joking. The state of Texas recognizes this as a crime. And depending on what's done, you can end up paying a lot of fine and being sent away for a long, long time. And the reason I bring this question up is because I see in the church oftentimes counsel given to a spouse to remain in an abusive environment, to put herself and her children at continual risk of someone who is on a power trip displaying cruelty over and over again. And that, my friends, is absolutely wrong. That is not what marriage is designed for. And so, my friends, if, 
If you find yourself in a situation like that, or in the future may find yourself in a situation like that, call the police. It's not your fault that someone is abusing you. You need to call the police. You need to call a good friend, maybe a family who can help you out in that. And you need to call the elders of this church so we can help you in this. I wish I could say that in my experience of being a pastor, that I never saw this in the church. But I do. I have. I've seen people who come to church and on the outside look like they have it all together. But at home are very violent and cruel towards their spouse. My friends, this should not be the case. So the disciples said to Jesus in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. What is Jesus referring there to? Not everyone can receive this saying. Is he referring to what the disciples just said? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry? Or is it referring back to basically his answer, no, you cannot divorce your wife for any reason. If you do so to marry someone else, you commit adultery. The answer to that might be yes, both of those. But they ask him, is it, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. One of the fun things I get to do as a pastor is to marry people. Let me say that differently. I am already married. To perform marriages for people, I should say it that way. <laughs> I remember saying that one time at a dinner party, and I was like, I married that couple. And they were looking at me like, they didn't know I was a pastor and what I was saying. But anyway, <laughs> marriage is something that God designed and something that God wants to bring people together in a sacred covenant so that they can be together and if God's blessing works out in their life for them to be able to have children. It's not the case in every marriage. But we shouldn't enter into marriage lightly. When I do a marriage... I get the best seat in the house, right? I'm standing up the front. I'm there with the bride or with the groom. I get to watch the bride come down, and they stand before me, and I invite everyone to sit down. And then I say words such as these. We have come together in the presence and sight of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy marriage. The covenant of marriage was established by God from the beginning of creation. It was adorned by our Lord Jesus Christ, by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church, and the Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given to one another in prosperity and adversity, in joy and sorrow, in sickness and in health, and, when it is God's will, for the procreation of children and their nurture in a safe and secure home. Therefore, this covenant of marriage is not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly, but reverently, deliberately, and honestly in the sight of God and in accordance with the purposes for which it is instituted by God. Into this holy union, Jack and Jill now come to be joined. These words basically echo words from the Book of Common Prayer, which is a guide for performing Christian marriages. And so whenever I get to 
have the opportunity to marry a couple, I always want to walk with them through some premarital counseling because I want to hear about their story. I want to hear about the assumptions they're bringing in. I want to help them navigate what they're about to do and understand the covenant that they're about to enter into with one another. And so I don't want them to enter into it lightly or unadvisedly, but reverently, deliberately, and honestly in the sight of God and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. Sadly, some of the marriages that I've performed have not worked out. There's been situations that just have broken my heart. But when they do work out, it can be a very beautiful testimony. I want to tell you about a mentor of mine by the name of Dr. Jim Walters. He was um, a professor and an advisor to me when I attended John Brown University my first year of college before I transferred to this great institution here at Texas A&M. And Dr. Walters was, he was a godly man. And as I got to know him and got to know his wife, I found out that she had MS, multiple sclerosis, and she was confined to a wheelchair. And I got to see him take her for walks on the campus. And I attended the same church that he did for a while. And I got to see him pull her out of the car, put her in her wheelchair, pull her, bring her into church, and afterwards to bring her back out and take her home. And I watched this man juggle his responsibility as a professor at a university with taking care of his wife who had this terrible disease. And I asked him one time, after I got the nerve to do so, why do you stay with her? And so many people in this world would tell you just to be free and pursue your own personal happiness. And this is what he told me. He said, I made a promise to be there for her, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That had a profound impact on me. I remember saying, I want to be that kind of a husband. One of the things I do when I do premarital counseling with people is to talk to them about the future. What will you do if, if one of you becomes disabled? One of you has serious sickness. Do you intend to be faithful to them at that point as well? What about when they can't make you happy anymore? Do you intend to stay with them? Because that's what you're promising to do and the value you're promising to be there in the future. And so is that what you're desiring? So Jesus, in verse 11, says to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are, uh, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus basically talks about the issue of a person being a eunuch. And he's obviously aware that sometimes there are birth defects in which people are functionally eunuchs. He talks about those who've been made eunuchs by men, usually those who are serving kings, who take care of their household. That's surgery performed so that that servant doesn't mess with the harem. And then Jesus says there are some who choose to be single for the sake of kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven. And so let the one who is able to receive it, to receive it. So I can summarize this for us like this. According to Jesus, God's design for marriage is intended to be for life. If we want to understand what Jesus is getting at when he talks about this issue of marriage. He says, look, it is designed by God to be for life. But sometimes it doesn't play out that way, right? I want us to spend just a couple of moments with us just thinking through some, some practical points of application. And the first one I think 
that could flow from this. There, there can be any number of applications to any study that we do, but in, in trying to bring some together for us, I try to, to think through how we can apply uh, the implications of this to our lives. And so the first one is this. Let's be aware of a powerful enemy that threatens every relationship. And I want to use, for example, the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He may have been part of that group that was questioning Jesus that day. He later became a follower of Jesus. And he wrote a letter to a group of Christians living in Rome. And he talks about how in his own life, he, he found things stirring within him when he heard about God's commandments. In fact, they kind of sprang to life. This is what he said. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let me just pause for a moment. That law is one of the big Ten Commandments, right? It comes at the very end where God says, you shall not covet. That means to intensely desire, to want something for yourself. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, for example. And so Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, notice how he speaks about sin as a power, as an agent, as something working within him with will. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. I do not understand my own actions, he goes on to say, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's a lot of discussion about Paul and how, what he means by this, but, but what I want us to see here is Paul is recognizing that there is a power within him, a power that is at work. It's almost like an enemy within that has its own will, and he describes it as sin. This thing at work within him that seeks to destroy and so he says, I find myself doing things I don't want to do. And I find myself not doing the things I want to do. Adele has this new song called um, Hold, Hold On. And in it she sings, Oh, what have, what have I done again? Have I not heard anything? I don't want to live in chaos. It's like a ride I want to get off. It's hard to hold on to who I am. When I'm stumbling in the dark for a hand, I'm so tired of battling with myself with no chance to win. And then she sings, I swear to God, I am such a mess. The harder that I try, I regress. I'm my own worst enemy. Right now, I truly hate being me. I shared this illustration with some of you before. That TV show 24 with Kiefer Sutherland playing Jack Bauer, this agent who is tirelessly at work trying to thwart um, terrorist activity in the United States. And it's just a mad rush to, to try and find the, the culprit and to, to deal with that threat. And once one threat is dealt with, there's another one that always pops up. And inevitably in the show, we come to find out that there's always a mole at work in the counterterrorism unit. They thought the enemy was out there. And it is. But the enemy was also right in here, very close to them. And I think that's a good illustration, my friends, that in each one of us, there's this power of sin that is at work within us, that is like a mole seeking to sabotage us, seeking to overthrow us, despite our best intentions, working against us. And as Paul says, that's the power of sin that is at work 
and people like you and me and him. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says it like this. Self-centeredness is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage when it begins, and it has to be dealt with. One of the things that I say to couples when we do premarital counseling with them is just realizing that the person that's going to say, I do, is a sinner. And the person responding, saying, I do, is also a sinner. That means you're bringing into this marriage, not just yourselves, but enemies within you that can be at work to destroy the very thing that you're seeking to build. And so you need to be aware of that. You need to fight against it. And you need grace to do so. Paul, in that same passage I was just referring to, says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, my friends, let me just take this moment to encourage you to seek out counsel sooner rather than later. I'm speaking specifically of those of you who are married. Oftentimes, when people think we need to get counseling for our marriage, they, they do so as the last-ditch effort to try to save the marriage. And really what they should have been doing is seeking counsel way ahead of that point where they've gotten to. And when I do premarital counseling with couples, I tell them, I like, look, if one of you believes that you need help, that you need counseling, then can you commit right now to saying yes, even if you don't think that you do? Because if one of you believes you need help, you need help. And so let me just put it this way as well. For Christians, we ought to think of this as, as something routine. I, I think couples should oftentimes get counseling to bring other people into their lives to, to check up on how their marriage is doing. My wife and I, over the years, have had a number of different people come in and pour into us. Um, I remember it took us about seven years of marriage before we could find out that when we're in a fight, that we could actually still be for the marriage. <laughs> which is really hard because when you're fighting, it seems like that person's the enemy. I'm looking at my wife, I'm like, why is she so crazy? And she's looking at me like, why is he so insane? And even then, in those moments when we're in the fight, we feel like we're, we're fighting for ourselves. And we made a big leap forward when we realized we can actually be mad at each other and even angry and not be able to figure out how to move forward in this and still be for our marriage. And ever since then, I'm not going to say we never fought again, but we know, going into fights and disagreements, that we're going to make it through. And so with that, let me say as well, my friends, and I tell this to folks that I do premarital counseling with, if you're in a fight with your spouse, don't threaten divorce. It is the easiest thing to do in the midst of a heated argument to just say, well, maybe we should call it off. Maybe we should get divorced. And my friends... Almost always, in talking to people who've done that, they regret saying that. But once that's escaped, it becomes like a worm that gnaws away at that marriage. And so don't throw that out. If you come together in a covenant marriage, you promise to be there. So don't throw out that maybe we should just end this covenant marriage. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And so think of counsel like you might think of changing the oil in your car. Or getting a tune-up. All cars need oil changes. And if you don't, bad things happen. Cars need tune-ups to function well. And if they don't, they continue to deteriorate. 
Marriages are like that. They need tune-ups. They need help. So don't be afraid to invite someone from the outside in and say, hey, can you help us put eyes on this situation? Help us to see what we're not seeing here. That's really good advice. Here's a second point of application. Let's draw upon the resources of the good news of Jesus. My friends, I'm acutely aware that for some of us this is a very painful issue. And even just bringing it up, there's so much trauma that gets stirred up in here. And let me just say I understand that. And, and I get that. And, and I don't want to add pain to anyone's life. But I do want you to know that God is not done with you. I remember having a dinner with a friend of mine. He's one of the men that I did the marriage for. And he and his wife, I never thought they would get divorced. But he ended up having an affair. And he repented of it. She forgave him, received him back. They're working on their marriage. And he went on a business trip and did it again. And she said, okay, we're done. And I remember having dinner with him. This was like probably a year or two after this happened. And he was genuinely broken. He realized just how stupid and how selfish he was. And in the midst of that, I, I, you know, I'm trying to empathize the best I can without just saying, well, no, you didn't make a mistake. I mean, of course he did. He messed it up. He destroyed his marriage. But one of the things I wanted to communicate in him, to him was that in Christ, you can be forgiven. God is not done with you. Because you've been divorced doesn't mean that God puts you on a shelf and you're no longer useful to him or his kingdom. It doesn't mean he no longer wants to use you for his own glory. He does. He wants to use you now in this new stage of life that you find yourself in. And so believe promises of scripture like this. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. If I may put it this way, God holds your tears as something sacred, as something that's precious to him. And he hasn't forgotten you. And he loves you. I don't know what all is involved with this imagery of putting my tears in your bottle, but it seems to communicate that God is keeping them for safekeeping. He, he wants to redeem that. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. My friends, if, if you are still dealing with pain from a relationship that's ended, or maybe you've, you've dealt some with that, and you've moved on with life, and maybe you've gotten married again, but there's still that pain and trauma there. It's okay to deal with that. It's okay to bring that before the Lord in, in your brokenness, realizing that he wants to draw near to the brokenhearted. He delights in saving those who are crushed in spirit. We enter the Christmas season next, uh, next week, and one of the songs that we love to sing is the song, Come That Long Expected Jesus, and it has this wonderful line, Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, friend. I love that. Jesus has come, my friends, to taste your sadness. He's not, just, he's not a distant God who doesn't really notice you. He knows the words on your tongue before you even speak them. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And he has come to taste your sadness, and he's come to bring life. Life where you find yourself now. Life in your brokenness. Life in the wake of mistakes. Life 
in a place where there's regret because he is our redeemer and shepherd and friend. This Jesus is the same one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you may have experienced someone leaving you, forsaking you. Jesus wants you to know he's the one that will never do that. Jesus has also come to deal with the destructive self-centered tendencies at work in our relationships. All of us, whether we're married or not, need the work of Christ to battle that enemy within each and every one of us, to draw upon the resources that are available when he gives us his Holy Spirit, and to seek to live the new kind of life that he calls us to as followers of Jesus. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. These are characteristics, traits, that God wants to work in us. And Paul talks about it like putting on new clothing. And so let's move forward in that. And here's the last point of application, my friends. Let's create a culture of gospel healing right here at Mercy Hill Church. What would it look like for us to create a community of gospel healing where we are there for one another when life falls apart? When, they're, when we are there to, to help pick up the pieces when someone's marriage falls apart? When someone's kids go astray? What would it look like for us to create a community of healing right here? And I want you to know, my friends, your pain, your tears, your history, that's part of the story that God wants to redeem. And oftentimes, the way he redeems that is in community with one another. We need to be able to hear the gospel preached to us by someone else to remind us that God has not forgotten us, that he collects our tears in a bottle, that he longs to redeem our brokenness and our pain and to use us wherever we find ourselves. What would it look like, my friends, for us to be that kind of a healing community? Don't you want to be that kind of healing community? If Jesus is the one who draws near to the brokenhearted, what does that mean for the followers of Jesus? Shouldn't they be drawing near to the brokenhearted as well? And of course, there's that beautiful passage at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where it says, He, as Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. My friends, there's much brokenness in this world. And sometimes, despite our best effort, efforts, marriages fall apart. Sometimes spouses walk out. Sometimes we do really stupid things and damage other people. But there is a day coming, Jesus promises, when sin will be dealt with fully and finally, and he himself will wipe away your tears. He will welcome you into his eternal embrace, the kingdom of heaven, where there is no more sin, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. 